Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Greetings, monkeys, star children, and everyone else to episode 93 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, just awakened from his deep space sleep, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hey, buddy. Open the potty doors, please, Patrick. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do that, Aaron. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm afraid yeah. you say that. <laughs> <laughs> this is week two of Kubrick Month, and on this episode, we are excited to talk about the uh, 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, or as I used to refer to it, that really long and boring movie that my dad liked a lot. <laughs> Before <laughs> we get into that... <laughs> Is that how this is going to go? <laughs> we'll see, oh right? Oh my gosh. Well, we'll get into all that. But before we do, why don't we just catch up a little bit? Aaron, what have you been up to this week? Well, I am going to go off something that's not on my notes first and say I had a rewatch this week that was really emotionally affecting. And that's what we talk about here. So it's worth mentioning. And that is a film called Warrior. Uh, it stars Joel Egerton and Tom Hardy with Nick Nolte uh, in it as well. And it's a movie about two brothers who have both have a history of being MMA fighters. And I've always enjoyed it and always liked it. Um, I've always, I've always cried every time I've watched it because it's, it's very powerful. But this last time it just had me, I was alone in my apartment and I ugly cried by myself it was one of the first times I've done that. In fact, the only time I can remember ugly crying alone or, or by myself watching a film in recent months and months and months are Les Mis and now this. It's one of those things where you know it's coming and it's really a pretty paint by the numbers story. Like you don't, th there's nothing super unexpected. You know, it's a, it's like a boxing movie. You, you know what's going to happen, but it's not about that. It's about how they show it and, and how the emotion is brought out on screen. And, there's just something about it that makes it my probably favorite fighting movie. It's right there with Creed for me, I think. And I, I don't have the old old uh, time connection to the Rocky films like you do. But other than other than that, it is it is just phenomenal. So I, you need to check it out at some point. It's probably it's probably one where, where we should talk about actually. I've seen it. I've seen it. Oh, it's, okay. it's a favorite of mine. Yeah. Good. So then we definitely need to talk about it hits on the feeling film aspect of uh of this show it definitely is which is our title so definitely anyway <laughs> move on well, the uh the theater movie that i want to talk about this week the one that's opening uh more more so nationwide is it's should be expanding this next weekend i think wide release and that's phantom thread the new film from paul thomas anderson for any of our listeners that have you know, paid attention to our social media feeds. You will have seen me raving about this and posting my review all over the place. Um, I, it is my number four film of 2017. So I'm very high on it. I got to see it a second time just to really main, you know, nail down my review because the first time I saw it was over a month and a half ago uh, for awards consideration. And it just blew me away even more this second time around. It's a, it's a, it's about a dark and twisted relationship between this dressmaker who is obsessive and controlling. He's played by Daniel Day-Lewis, the great. And then there's this newcomer 
named Vicky Creeps, uh, who plays a character named Alma, who's just a waitress at this countryside cafe who um, Daniel Day-Lewis's character becomes smitten with, and they embark on this relationship. It is part period romance melodrama and part dark, very personal comedy. In fact, there's times when I laugh out loud and the whole theater is laughing out loud. And it's this very awkward experience where it's a low laugh and chuckle. And everybody kind of is looking around at the people next to them going, oh, oh, am I supposed to be laughing at that? It's that kind of laughter that just kind of sneaks out. And you're like, and then you you realize maybe that's not funny, but it kind of, or maybe it's not meant to be funny, but it is. Um Obviously, it's meant to be funny. PTA knows what he's doing. But it's just, it's a very unpredictable story. And it's got, it's about this unconventional, unconventional psychosexual relationship. And it's just completely fascinating to me, the way that it plays out. It's got everything. It's got the total package. Phenomenal acting. Vicky Creeps, the main actress I was telling you about, the newcomer. She is my pick for Best Actress of 2017. Uh performance the supporting actress uh, leslie manville she as well could easily be nominated for awards phenomenal and then you have daniel day lewis possibly the third best performance in this film and yet still oscar worthy okay so that's that's the level that these three actors are at in this movie it is a treat to watch the direction's perfect the writing's incredible the cinematography is amazing. And what's shocking about that is that Paul Thomas Anderson actually served as the DP for this film as well. He wrote it, directed it and shot it all himself. The dude is a genius. It, he blows my mind every, every time I learn something new about him or see something else. Um, the score as well is phenomenal. Very well could be Oscar nominated, potentially even wins by Johnny Greenwood, who, if you don't know, is from the band Radiohead. So you would not expect this classical violin and piano score to be coming out of his head, but he knocks it out of the park. It fits the aesthetic of this film and this period nature of the film perfectly. There is a complete attention to detail about everything in this. Wonderful close-up shots, lots of facial expression acting going on. And I mean, it's... It's just, it's, I just want to soak it in. I feel like I could live in this atmospheric haze of this picture. It is, is wonderful. And I can't wait to see it again. So I am urging everyone to go see this as soon as it hits your theaters. Phantom Thread. Awesome. 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 I know that you have been raving about this. So it's probably one that is going to get a lot of uh, love. If not for that, then just because it sounds like an amazing movie. So, and I'm glad you're doing a Paul Thomas Anderson filmography. I guess that's your challenge this year. So it'll be interesting to see how this lines up with his other stuff as he's led up to this. Yeah, it will be interesting because I'm only about three films deep. I've watched his, his first two short films and then his very first feature film so far. And I'm about to start uh, getting through the rest of his feature length films. And it will be very neat to kind of, come back around to Phantom Thread at the end of that and see where it fits for me. Mm. Yeah. What about you, man? What have you been doing? 
Well, I watched the documentary this week. It's called 24-Hour Comic. It's on Hulu. Jeremy recommended it to me, and he did so because of the fact that it reminded him of what I had done last year and the year before with the the 48-Hour Film Project. It takes place in Portland, Oregon at Things from Another World. It's a comic and... It's a comic shop mainly, but it's got all kinds of like figures and stuff like that. And of course, having never been to Portland, Oregon, I can only assume that it's a really cool place to go. Uh, I bought comics from there online in the past, so I'm somewhat familiar with it. But the the documentary is it follows a challenge that was created by Scott, uh, Scott McCloud. If you're not familiar with him, he's a comic book writer and artist. He is known for a book called making comics and it's basically his definitive guide to how to craft your own comic book but he's also a uh, an acclaimed artist and writer as well and he put this challenge together to more than anything give creators a chance to just exercise their comic creativity and there are eight creators that come into the store and they have essentially it's it's what the title is it's you have 24 hours to create a 24 page comic uh, you can't have any notes prior to everything has to be created in that moment. It starts at like 10 a.m. one morning and it goes 10 a.m. the following morning. And creators are from all over, uh, at least all over the Portland area for this one. Although at the end of the documentary, he, the, the the text at the end said that there are other events that have taken place and been inspired by by this event. But this particular event is it follows these eight artists, eight writers and artists, and it gives you a glimpse into who they are, not only as artists, but also as people. We come to find out that one of the participants was an up-and-coming comic book writer. She was she was getting very uh, a lot of accolades here and there, and because of a medical condition that happened, she was unable to uh, to continue. And uh, the, the debilitating um, thing that happened to her derailed her comic career and she tried to get back into it and and really just couldn't find legs and so she had, has gone on to become a, a successful web developer and creative in that regard but others are local artists that are putting together uh, just local books here and there one is uh, one has competed in this i think uh, this was his eighth attempt <laughs> to uh to 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 finish um, another one has been doing this for, I think, probably close to, I don't know, maybe he's on his 20th attempt and he's actually completed all and his daughter competes uh, in this. But what I enjoyed the most about this, Aaron, was the fact that we got a glimpse into the lives of these people and why they enjoy doing what they do. And because it speaks not only to the world of comics, because part of the documentary explores the fact that comics is not this mega giant thing. It's a business. It's not an enterprise. Now, DC and Marvel and Image to an extent, yes, there's there's the company name and the branding behind that. It's big and bold. But honestly, let's face it, they get their money from movies and TV shows more so than they get from sequential art. And so from a comic book writer and artist standpoint, you're talking about an even less amount of money-making involved. And so a lot of what's articulated in the documentary is the fact that these guys do what they do because they love it, because they're compelled to be creative. And so that speaks to a lot of creative hearts in general, whether you draw or you compose music or you are a filmmaker, 
the the tone behind this whole doc is you know continue to do what it is that you love because that's what gives you life in terms of your creativity and i love that i love the fact that this competition was anything but that it was really more of a competition with each individual person against themselves to see if they could successfully create something in 24 hours. If they didn't, that was okay. Nobody shunned them and they didn't feel bad. It was for one guy, he says it's an opportunity for him to have something to start. So if he has an idea and he only gets like 10 pages in over this 24 hour period or however long he lasts, it gives him an idea that he can maybe build a a longer story from. And I think it's great. I think it's, I think Scott McCloud has done something pretty wonderful with this event because it not only allows creatives to exercise uh, in a, in a fast pace type of thing, much like the 48 hour film project does for filmmakers, but it also brings these guys together and you see some, even if they're not working together, there's this general camaraderie about uh, what they're doing and this common ground that they find. And so I thought it was just incredibly enjoyable. Um, it's one that I would definitely recommend to anybody who loves comics, but uh, more generally people that just love to see how creatives work and what their processes are and things like that. So it's really good. Yeah, it sounds great, man. And I think I agree with you a hundred percent on the concept of just the, the 48 hour film project. And then this, they do something similar in the board game world called unpubs, um, where people just get together and they, they create, they do these games and they, they kind of throw them together and, and see what can ha- come out of it. Um, I know there's a video game version of this as well. And it's awesome because mm-hmm. it, it's kind of rapid fire, really hardcore focused creativity, right? right. With no distractions. And that just gets those juices flowing. And if something lasting comes out of it, that's awesome. But I bet that in all of these creative mediums, little pieces come out of, you know, different times when you do this. And then yeah. before you know it, oh, wow, we could put that piece with this piece and, oh, I could do that thing and it would work better in this project. And so very, very, very neat. Yeah. Well, with that being said, why don't we get into our review? And before we do that, as we always do, we give our spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the movie or don't really care to sit through our conversation, why are you listening? Uh, but if you are interested, go ahead and watch the film, give yourself about two and a half hours, because that's about how long this is, and come back when you have finished, because this is a spoilerific podcast, and we are excited to dive in and talk deep, deep details of this movie. So without further ado, let's get started. Aaron, rewatch. I know this is not your first time watching, neither is mine. So how does nope. your how does your first time compare with the most recent rewatch? Could not tell you. I have no earthly idea when I saw this movie for the first time. I was young. It was before I was into film. And my guess is that I was bored to tears. This is a movie that I, until last year, and I'm going to make a confession, that I'd always kind of had it on a top 100, top 50, top 25 list even, because it's a sci-fi masterpiece and I knew I'd seen it and I remembered pieces of it like I remembered how and I knew there was a rogue computer and a cool monolith but I honestly didn't remember anything else around it and how things worked and fit together but yet I just it was just hanging out there because of hype to be honest and so last year 2017 I had the opportunity to catch this 
in 70 millimeter format at a local theater. And it's our, it's our most awesome theater. It's big. It's huge. And it was amazing just to watch this on the big screen in this wide angle, um, way of shooting. And it's, it's crisper, it's brighter, and it just allows you to see more details than you could normally see when it's in this 70 millimeter format is complete with intermission and, you know, tons of just overture to it. And I, I really enjoyed that experience. And so even though I didn't understand it before that viewing, I started to understand it more. I still walked away, not a hundred percent sure of what the heck is going on at certain points in this film. That we will talk about, but amidst all of those monkeys and monoliths and space babies, I realized that the technical aspects of this are to me, non-debatable. They are outstanding. And I had an unexpected emotional response to it. And so I really do feel like this is one of the greatest films ever made for about two hours. My one word takeaway for this one is awesome. And that's because I, the literal definition of awesome is awe inspiring. And for me, that's what this movie is looking at it. Now thinking back to the fact that this was made before we landed on the moon, these ideas were on screen from Kubrick. It's amazing. And the way that the music works in this film the way that the images are paired with it, it generates that feeling of awe and wonder about space and the unknown, at least in me. So that's that's kind of where I've sat over these last few viewings. And right now, I would tell you, I, it is it is absolutely one of my favorite movies of all time. And I say that without loving the whole movie. Yeah, when I was when I was growing up, this was a favorite of my dad's. And I remember him quoting a line that was actually from the sequel, you know, the, my God, it's full of stars. Haven't seen it. And I don't know that a lot of people have, well, maybe more people have than, than not, but the sequel is, is definitely, is definitely on, not on par with technical masterpiece. Both are completely different tonally. One's an extension of the other. It's definitely an, an, an it definitely is a sequel in terms of by definition, but not in terms of tone or style. Uh, both were doing two different things and that's a conversation for probably social media. But I remember sitting down and watching it with my dad and much like you not getting it and not really loving it, wondering when it was going to be over, wondering why it was so slow, like what's going on here. And there were things that were interesting about it. There were monkeys and then there were spaceships and then there were talking computers and then there were people moving in slow motion, grabbing pins out of thin air. So those things really kind of stuck with me visually. And as I got older, I began to try to understand it more for what it was. I mean, like you, I think in my head, I was like, well, I guess it's an amazing movie because everybody says it's an amazing movie. And I didn't see that significance until I was older. And I was, I'm always glad that we get to do these rewatches if we've seen a movie before for the podcast, because uh, you and I have talked offline about how we, we, we watch things with a focus. We obviously watch movies with a connecting point in mind and try to find a deliberate 
focus when we watch a movie. So getting a chance to revisit this, I'm glad that I have a more honest opinion about it and not just the popular opinion, but I agree with the popular opinion. I agree with the fact that it is, it is a marvel. It is a, it is a, a different kind of movie. It is a thinking man's film. I think it's where films like interstellar get their legs. Speculative science fiction. It's actual science fiction. Yes. And what I think, I don't know that movies like Interstellar that we both love would have been what they were without the pioneering efforts of Kubrick and Clark and what they did in 2001. And so the word that, but the word that stood out to me, the one word takeaway that I have is patient. And I think a lot of people who walk 2001 to me is like the Olympics. You either really love it or you really hate it because it's, it's not, it's not a movie that is your typical movie. And it is very focused and very uh, drawn out. Slow, slow. Is, slow. I mean, yeah. I mean, let's, it let's be honest. It, it's a very slow movie. In fact, I remember watching it this time in the world of smart TVs. This is really interesting. I'd forgotten about the first two minutes of the film being completely black. Oh and yeah, being, it's wacky. It, it's and when you're watching it at home specifically, right? Most of the movies that I watch are digital. I usually, if I have a physical copy of a disc, I'll usually just rip it. So it'll be, it's a, uh, uh so screen. Is this, is this thing on? Is this working? Is this right? <laughs> well, that's what's funny is I turned it on and I hear the sound. And about a minute later, my TV's screen shuts off. Like the power save mode goes on because there was nothing happening on the screen. My television, what it does is if it doesn't depict, if it doesn't show, if it doesn't uh, d- recognize anything like visually happening on the screen, it actually just kind of goes to sleep. And so I've got this, Oh my gosh, I've got this TV that's basically off with this weird orchestral sound happening in the background. And I'm like, did I screw something up? And so I fast forwarded to make sure, okay, they're the monkeys. Okay, good. The movie's not messed up. I didn't rip it wrong or anything. But from the very beginning, we have this sense of, having to be patient with this movie because it's doing something in a very, uh, very slow manner. And after watching it, the, one of the big questions that came to my mind was, is this film a piece of art or is it entertainment? And if we focus on one or the other, does it change our perspective of what the film is and our appreciation of it. So I wanted to kind of ask you that question. Do you see this movie as more of a cinematic piece that is worthy of popcorn and and soda, or do you see it as more of a, an artistic experience, uh, more of a, like you're in a museum? Wow. Well, that's a, that's a very good question. And uh, I, you know, I think, I think I see it as both. And I think that there are, parts of the film that are undeniably artistic in nature and meant to be that thinking man's sci-fi. They're meant to be vague and ambiguous. I almost believe that Kubrick quite possibly was just screwing with us at times and doing things because he knew that we would be like, Oh, he's a genius. And he had no clue. There was no, I I honestly wonder that sometimes if there was really no meaning to some of the things that are going on and he just kind of, you know, pulled one over on us essentially. But regardless, even if that was the case, he was playing off of our inherent curiosity as human beings. 
And so I, I can watch this as entertainment or as art. Personally, I'm able to sit there and just take in the beauty of the framing of the shots and the way in which this, this movie was created from a technical standpoint, or I'm able to let myself kind of get wrapped up in the emotion of it and the story. So I, I think it's both. I halfway agree. So I guess that means I think it's a quarter of a, no, that's using weird division. I, I would have to agree with you. I think it's, I think it is both. And I see it more as an artistic movie than a cinematic experience. And I say that because it's because of the intentional pacing of the movie. It feels like it's giving us an opportunity to absorb everything that's going on in each scene. Uh, a lot, I mean, in a similar way that you would stare at a painting when you're at a, a museum, you're, you're not just going to, okay, well, most people probably would do this, but if you're, if you're trying to really appreciate art, you're going to look at the painting and you're going to check out the, the strokes of the, that the artist made, you're going to check out the details, you know, and, and kind of maybe ask yourself the questions. Why did he put this here? Why did he use that color there? And in a lot of ways, I think Kubrick was doing that. Uh, the lack of dialogue and limited cinematic music, they amplify the tension of the events. And so there's that, there's, there's a movie aspect of it. And I definitely felt that tension. Um, but we, as an audience, we discover alongside the characters because of that patient storytelling approach uh, that's chosen. And I know that there is a plot, but I feel like it's sort of buried underneath this cinematic canvas that Kubrick and Clark have created. But because of the way we experienced the film, that simple plot creates this high tension. At least it did for me. And I, I was really surprised at that because based on my past experience of knowing and, and knowing what I did about the movie, I didn't expect to be as anxious or as tense in the moments that I was because I knew that I was going to be watching some pretty spectacular visuals, but I didn't expect to feel some of the, some of the tension that I did. And, and that was, I was really pleasantly surprised. I, I would have to, I guess I agree. I, I would say up until the how section. So everything, the, the movie is plays out in like acts, right? Or arc. It's, it's in three parts, essentially three parts. But so everything prior to, well, I guess, the before and after of the Jupiter section where we're going to the moon to explore the monolith. And mm -hmm. then after, of course, which is the cray cray part, the, the Stargate sequence, the Stargate sequence or cray cray either way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> same thing. The, uh, but anyway, the Jupiter section for me, that's, I guess you're right. Cause that's where I'm saying that's my, it's cinematic half. Agreed. The, everything around that, even in, that moon sequence where we're we're going up into space and then we're on the space station and Dr. Floyd is you know talking to other astronauts and then he's flying to the moon and discovering the monolith and all that stuff. I am more interested in that section in the filmmaking, the art, than I am the story. I'm focused in on, wow, look at that design of a spaceship from back then what they thought it was going to look like. And Oh my gosh, look how they're showing me gravity when he's asleep. Look at how these things are shot. You know, look at 
them going through these bay doors uh, and into this, the docking of the space station sequence is it's incredible. Like I'm mesmerized by seeing it and not by the fact that it's a plot point and it's happening. So I guess in that regard, yeah, I totally see the art side being a stronger part than cinematic at least. Well, I like that you visually kind of called it a, I think I call it an artistic sandwich with some, some movie plot in between, because that's really what it was. That's pretty good. Dawn of man and the Stargate sequence are very much artistic and giving us explanation into the philosophical why and give us the big questions that we take away, which I think is kind of fitting. We're wondering why does this movie about space start out with apes and why does it end with star child? And those are good questions to ask. And I think that's why we have guys like Kubrick and Clark who left this, this movie very ambiguous. Just a little quick uh, bit of history. Um, I didn't know this before watching it this time. 2001 A Space Odyssey, as you know, is a movie, as we're talking about, but it's also a book. It's one of four books written by Arthur C. Clarke. And you would expect it to be an adaptation of that book. Well, that's not the case. And maybe I'm the only one that knew this because everyone I talked to was like, well, yeah, it's not an adaptation. These guys actually worked on this together. It came out of an inspired story by Clark called The Sentinel that Stanley Kubrick read, wanted to collaborate with Clark on and expand this story. And so the movie became Kubrick and Clark's visual interpretation or visual articulation of this story. And what, what Clark does in the book and subsequent books is he gives us more of a definitive explanation. Although there's still some nice ambiguity and there's still some great philosophical questions that try to get answered and, and it, it creates some great discussion. 2001 specifically as a film was meant to be ambiguous. I remember reading several interviews where Clark was like, if we, if you left the theater understanding this, then we didn't do a good enough job, which is kind of frustrating if you think about it, because it's like, it, it goes to your point that maybe Kubrick was just kind of throwing some stuff in there just to make us feel like, Oh yeah, I don't understand it. So it must be amazing. And I think there's a little bit of irony here because we know he doesn't do that for the shining. And yet you have all these fan theory people that come out and, and kind of craft their own theories about certain aspects of the film. Whereas he was trying to be intentionally ambiguous in 2001. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that agree on what it's about. Although I'm probably not one of those people because I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, I don't know that I would want any more information to be honest. So despite the fact that I don't have an answer, I like the ambiguity of the ending. It's not necessarily the fact that it's ambiguous that bothers me. It's I don't necessarily enjoy the way in which it's shown to us. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, it yes. almost sounds like I'm trying to say I want to have my cake and eat it, too. Like I want it to be confusing, but not that way. Not that style of confusing. But it's it's so far removed from coherence for the most part that it, it kind of kills the funness of it being hard to figure out. I absolutely agree. That's my biggest criticism. And I think you, you said it earlier, the last 20 minutes are incredibly frustrating and they're not for me. They're not frustrating because I don't know the answers. They're frustrating because I feel like Kubrick spent way too much time lingering and I'm okay. And I'll be the first to tell you, 
I get the criticisms of it being slow, but I don't, I love the pace of everything about the movie except the last 20 minutes. And where I got really frustrated was during the Stargate sequence when we start getting into the series of technicolor flyovers of landscapes and it just kept going on and on and on and on and on. And I was like, okay, I get it. I get what we're doing here. And I, it, it began to, it began to frustrate me and to make me less inclined to want to finish. Like, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to continue. I was like, okay, what are we getting at? Because when you do something like that, when you linger too long, you start losing the meaning behind why you're lingering. And I think that's where good, good storytellers and good filmmakers and good editors work together to craft that. Yep. And, and it, it's, it says something that you could, knowing what, once you've seen it before, you could turn this movie on after the monkeys and turn it off when Dave departs and have just a very good, great, amazing movie experience. You don't need it. You could, you could be just as satisfied without those two sections. I, I, I will, I'll disagree with you on the Dawn of Man because two reasons. One, I think it sets up a lot of what the main message is that Kubrick's telling about the progression. But I said, once you've seen it, right? Like, do you need, do you feel that you need to see that section over and over again to need? need, No, want to? Yes. Because because it, it enhances my movie experience. What I'm saying is that Stargate sequence does not enhance my movie experience. It's not, if I were to skip the Dawn of Man for practical reasons, that would be a different reason for me skipping the Stargate sequence. I would skip the Stargate sequence because it's just frustrating to me. And and I feel like it, it's just too much. I agree. I will say that on the big screen in 70 millimeter, it was a lot less irritating than it was watching it at home today because I'm getting that a more immersive visual audio experience. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like I'm in a laser light show for a lot of it. I, I think the first half of it's great with the, with the spectacle of the, of the Technicolors where I've got, if it would have ended there, if we would have landed in the classic hotel room after that, instead of cutting over to these flyovers of land in reds and blues, like the entire, it is repetitive too. So it's not even new landscape. That's what's annoying to me. That, and that was my biggest frustration. You didn't, I don't feel like that was needed. And at that point I just said, okay, credits need to roll. And (laughs) I'm watching this with my wife. And I've been because it's a long movie. I kind of split it up into two halves. Obviously, there's an intermission, so I'm not alone in this. Kubrick obviously knew this was a long movie that needed a break. So I'm watching this last half with my wife, and she's watching this. And she's, she's I got the quote is this. Uh, she said, uh, "Where was it? Where was it?" She said, "I can't believe you like this, <laughs> and I don't know how you can sit through this. It's just so slow." And I looked at her and I said, "You're absolutely right." And it just happened to be at that sequence. And I'm going, in this point, I agree with you. I was just going to say, the, the biggest criticisms I know, even from film critic, fellow film critics and from movie fans and, and people in Facebook group and such, everybody talks about how it puts them to sleep. And so I don't get that. I think a movie can be slow paced and even 
somewhat boring in sections without feeling like I'm checked out. I never feel checked out. I feel like I am still engaged in it all the way through, except for that little piece that we've talked about yeah. several times. Well, let me quote something. I was reading an article and I want to, I think this kind of sums up what you're saying. And this is the quote, the obvious lack of dialogue and the structure at first glance incoherent, incomprehensible meant the audience had to match the demands of the film and invest themselves fully in it, which is probably why the initial response from the critics was so diverse. More than a few audience members were left puzzled and disappointed, feeling Kubrick dedicated far too much attention to the impeccable technological aspect of 2001 at the expense of dehumanizing the characters and abandoning character development. This is a film that is meant to be experienced, not merely watched. A film that asks to be felt, not only seen and heard. So there's an intent here that I think I'm not going to speak to a general statement about the world we live in and the world of social media, but I know that you and I can confess saying we probably have our phones out when we're watching movies at home and we're probably checking social media and we're kind of in and out of the movie because there's enough about most movies that we can catch the basic plot points. 2001, you got to watch everything, not because you're going to miss something, but because the whole point of watching it is to experience it and to experience the whole thing. And I think that that's what gets missed is because it's so slow, because it's so demanding on us to just sit through and be patient. That's where the biggest frustration is, is we just can't keep the attention span there. I wholeheartedly agree. And and there's a couple things I want to say about that. One, again, that floating pin sequence when Dr. Haywood is asleep and he's on his way to, to the space station, it's, it's lingers. He lingers there. But because of that, and that score, we are able to get more of a sense of what it's like versus just showing it to us in 15-second clip, and then the next thing you know, we've docked. We're understanding the length of the trip. We're, we're, we're really living in it. And I agree, it's, it's a lot of – a lot of the problem is the, the lack of attention span that we have as viewers. And you don't have that as much when you're in the theater either. Nowadays, like you said, when you're at home, you're distracted. But when I was in that theater viewing, I had nowhere else to go other than to just soak it all in. But the thing that really stood out to me about what you were just saying is a lack, somebody saying it has a lack of humanity or character development. And I think that that's not understanding what 2001 is about and what Kubrick is getting at, what his point of the story is, because the story isn't about a human. It's about humanity, okay? It's about Kubrick being uber pessimistic about humanity. And this this shows up in his films over and over again. In fact, there's multiple films where he basically kills the earth off. We're going to talk about one next week too. So this is like, he just, he's done with the earth, it seems. Like he does not believe, or his films, some of them show, that humanity is kind of doomed to go through this cycle. And it's like this – it's like a, a circle, you know, like it just happens over and over again because what we see is we see the monolith give humanity technology. And what humanity does with it is they kill each other. And then later we see the monolith again gifting a now evolved humanity something else. And I'll tell you, I don't know what happens in that moment with the monolith, but I'm – Considering the fact 
that the gifts given at that point on the moon could be making the AI sentient in essence or giving it the ability to to think for itself and letting the technology evolve, which again does nothing but just come back to it goes from humans killing the humans to the AI killing the humans. <laughs> and I really believe, I think I, I say I really believe, and then I think <laughs> I want so badly to like have a definitive feeling or, or um theory theory on this movie. That space baby at the end and after all of that Stargate sequence, I really think that we've come full circle and essentially humanity is now done and a new species has emerged. And then starting that cycle over. It's a good theory to have. And it's definitely valid because movies like this, stories like this give us the ability to fill in the gaps that these creators create for us. I was watching a, I guess a video fan theory of of this movie and how they tried to explain everything and some you know my wife left the the whole when she was when we finished it up she goes so is that about like the circle of life and i said no this wasn't the lion king and and then i laughed and she gave me the eye roll and then i said it's kind of like that to some people and your theory is just as valid this idea that we're gifted this thing and we abuse it and we're gifted this thing and we continue to abuse it. And humanity just is evolving, you know, apes to man, man to AI, I guess at this point, AI or, mm-hmm. or, or man yeah. to space baby, because we don't really know what happens. And I'm, and I'm, I'm going to continue to talk within the framework of the movie because I've, I've read the book and I've, I've seen the the sequel and it gets fleshed out a little bit more. So contained within this, we don't know what happens to Dave Bowman. We assume that he goes from himself to older, to dying, to reborn. And so in that regard, has he, my theory is that in that point, he has kind of evolved into something beyond human. Like he is now the next evolution of that, which falls right in with, with your theory. And so in spite of Kubrick's pessimism about humanity, there's a little bit of hope there that <laughs> maybe we can harken back to Ian Malcolm. Life finds a way. In this case, it evolves to find a way. And now it's a new type of life form that even goes beyond, uh, even goes beyond the the world of AI. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very possible. Um, speaking of that AI, can we talk about Hal a little bit? Because, yeah. I mean, he's like the character that is in this movie that everybody knows. Right. And I think it's interesting that Kubrick, I think it might speak somewhat to Kubrick's love of technology and technical filmmaking because the computer gets the big scenes and the big moments and is the main character. The, the, the human characters in this film are forgettable, to be honest. He's the emotional center and the emotional connectivity for us it's how mm-hmm. he he's even more emotional than dr floyd when he calls home to talk to his daughter i think it's actually a really great performance he's very stoic it's very monotone and just boring and routine like there's no emotion at all Hal's the only one that really shows us any emotion until towards the very end when things are life is on the line and then obviously you know dave and frank are gonna have some emotion at that point mm-hmm. but i wanted to just recap real quick kind of our i want to read that scene 
where we're introduced to Hal and then we can talk about Hal and what we think and, and things surrounding him is there's that, that moment where we hear an interviewer interviewing Hal. Okay. So first of all, that's weird. Just right off the bat. And the interviewer says, Hal, you have an enormous responsibility on this mission. In many ways, perhaps the greatest responsibility of any single mission element. You're the brain and central nervous system of the ship. And your responsibilities include watching over the men in hibernation. Does this ever cause you a lack of confidence? And I found that very intriguing this time around. The fact that the interviewer is asking a computer if it has confidence issues. Okay, it shouldn't if it's programmed right. Shouldn't even have the potential to have that. Hal says this. And to me, this is the first indicator right here of Hal being more sentient than we expect. He says, let me put it this way, Mr. Amore. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. It's like he believes in his own hype. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it, I, I feel the way he says it, though, the way that the lines are delivered, it's almost like he he kind of has some doubts. And I found that really interesting because I think the way that that interview goes down, it tips us off to the fact that this computer is not just a computer. And right. it can definitely do and say things or think things and operate outside the functions that maybe we believe it can. Well, so, it yeah, it sets it up good. It does, and it foreshadows what we see later, which is the failure in the AE-35 unit, or the apparent failure. Failure. <laughs> right. Because you're right, he really toots his own horn by saying the HAL 9000 is basically perfect. It's never made a mistake, which implies at some point, it's going to be at least implied that he makes a mistake, which then puts our guys Bowman and his partner in jeopardy, the vocal stylings. I don't know who the act, the voice actor that did how, but I thought that they really helped reinforce the ominousness and the sense of almost omnipotence of how, I mean, we noticed that how is everywhere. He's not just in the main control room. He's not just in the pod bay. He's, I mean, this, that red light that represents, I guess his eye is mm -hmm. everywhere. And so the way he responds to that interview question, it's very godlike. You know, it's as if he says, yes, I am basically in control of everything. I control life. So I don't think Kubrick is, is being unintentional when he's giving us an, a subtle godlike imagery of who HAL 9000 actually is. And it's a little scary, especially when we progress later in the film and we see what goes down because then we start picturing Hal as more than just a computer. His, his real sentience and potential real purpose is then known and it's scary. Yeah. Well, I almost made my connecting point, the conversation where Hal tells them that a 35 is failing. Mm -hmm. It is a wonderful scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because he's talking to, I believe it's Dave. I, I Dave. get him. I get him confused. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Dave. And he asks, he says, can I ask you a personal question? And at that point I'm like, whoa, 
whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you, what do you mean? Like, why are you asking a per like, well, how do you even know what a personal question is? Right. And he asks him if he has doubts about the mission. And Dave's like, no, I'm, I'm good. And you can, I, I swear you can feel the wheels turning in Hal's electronic brain where he is evaluating Dave's response. He's looking for a certain thing. He doesn't get it. There's like this ever so p small pause. And then he says, the A35 is failing. Like out of nowhere, almost like it's like the end part of that conversation. It's just kind of tacked on. And you can tell to me, it is so, it's like, it is heavy on me. And I'm like, oh no. Cause in that moment, you feel how, how switch and become, he makes the decision, right? Um, and I just, I think it's brilliant. The, the way in which that is conveyed has been tried so many times in so many other films about AI through history of, of movies. And rarely is it anywhere near as effective as it is in that moment. Oh, absolutely. There is a, there's not just a switch, but there's a moment of, as an audience, we're looking, if you look at Dave's face as he's processing, we're making that, I'm making that face with him. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Because the, the rest of the conversation is, is it, um, is it functional? He goes, yes, it will be functional all the way up until the point that it fails. And then, which I'm like, well, yeah, duh, I guess I, I mean, it's not going to, I would like, duh, hell. Yeah. It's, but I guess it means it's not going to degrade or you're not going to lose. It's a transmitter. So you're not going to lose uh, transmission. It's not going to degrade as it fails. And what that does is that leads into that next scene where they're going to, I'm assuming, replace the AE transmitter. Um, I think that they're actually going to check it out and see if it's failed. They're going to. So they go out, bring it back. It. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if they, they switched the old one because the, what's funny is that that scene sort of speaks to this idea of, um, of, of the, of patience. And if you, if you watch it, the moment that Dave gets into the pod going over to get the, get the unit, I think it's like three minutes. Three minutes of no dialogue, three minutes of just breathing. It's incredible. It's, I mean, it's, it's really, and there's no music. It's in that moment, you feel like, man, you're in the pod with him. You're breathing heavily. One of the, one of the, uh, the theorists that I read said, what makes that scene so great is the fact that you hear, all you hear is breathing. And it just reminds us that man is not in his element in space that he is at the mercy of space breathing heavily. And, Oh, it's just like, we don't, we don't get that a lot. We don't get, we, we get in our space operas, we get explosions and we get, we don't get those details. And, and I think that's what gives that tension to us is the fact that we spend three minutes getting to that. And we don't spend any time actually taking the unit out or coming back. It's just the next I scene know. is them checking it out. And coming to find out that it actually didn't fail. And I think to me, that's the turning point because they're starting to realize something, Hal's starting to realize something. And, and that's when the tension starts amping up, but you don't, I think it was enhanced by the fact that we get that, those three minutes of just lingering because at some point, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, <laughs> is, is, is a, is a comet going to come out and just, just, rip Dave away while he's just vulnerable right. in space. Cause he's space well, walking at that point. But I think that that's, that's 2018's viewing right. knowledge. 
impacting your viewing nowadays too, because when this movie came out, that's not what somebody was thinking was going to happen. They haven't seen Armageddon. Okay. Like we, we have a different palette to, to kind of affect our, our experience from, but certainly watching it in this day and age, that is something that is a viable, you don't, one of the things I tweeted out when I was watching this during, during the um, rewatch yesterday or whatever it was, was something about how, has there ever been a positive result to somebody doing a spacewalk in a movie? <laughs> I have never seen that go well, ever. Right. It's never, never worked out. Like the moment somebody's like, oh, I'm going to go out and fix this thing. It's like a horror movie, you know, like up oh, there, write them off. It's the, yeah. <laughs> it's done. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love that. And that speaks to that technical nature of, of Kubrick and not having explosion sounds in space and right. trying to actually replicate what it's like ver- physically versus doing it for the cinematic reasons. Right. And, and I think what it does, and he does this in the shining too, it's, it's really amplifying that sense of isolation. I mean, you have these two individuals, you have, you have Dave and Frank who are the only two besides how, so I guess there'd be three, three individuals that are able to communicate with one another on this big giant ship, which I think is a great design, by the way. I love the design of Discovery. And you have these two or three other crew members that weren't going to get wake, woken up until they hit Jupiter. But then after the whole event takes place, gets the whole event takes place with Frank and then Hal gets shut down. We really get a sense of isolation that Dave has as he's going to Jupiter as he reaches Jupiter and reaches the monolith. But even in that spacewalk sequence, we get hints of that. We get hints of, man, he's really, he honestly is alone in his, when he leaves his pod, that's when the tension really amps up of isolation because he doesn't, he's not surrounded by his, his pod anymore. He doesn't have that security when he goes out to get Frank, you know, when Frank's just floating in space and he's just going and going and going, I'm like, you're, you're, what what are you doing? You're leaving, you're leaving the safety net. You're leaving discovery. And in those moments, I felt so kind of isolated with him. Like you really are alone. And, and I think Kubrick does a masterful job of using space, the scientific, as well as like the cinematic space to amp up that isolation. And, and, and that creates that real nice tension that he wants us to feel. I totally agree. And I also love the humanity in that moment as well, that mm-hmm. they're, they're alone. They know they're hosed because Hal has control, but yet Dave is still willing and, and eager to go risk himself to go get Frank, right? It's still mm-hmm. that human. It's almost like showing you intentionally that the difference in how the brain, how the actual human soul works versus the, the computer AI and that, that Dave is concerned about someone else. Right. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that scene real quick because that's one that the second time that they go out where Frank goes out to replace the AE 35, it is a different flavor than when Dave goes out. And, you, and we know this, I mean, it, we don't linger for three minutes and we get cuts, hard cuts back and forth between Dave and how Dave and how Dave, or, I'm sorry, Frank and how Frank and how, and then we get that, that tradi- that, that traditional Kubrick zoom in, and then an explosion without any sound because nothing, you know, in space, there's no sound. What I thought was interesting was seeing Dave's reaction in any other cinematic storytelling. We could have had dramatic music playing and Dave running through the space station. 
but he wasn't because one gravity, you know, they don't have a full like earth gravity in that space station. It's simulated to represent like one fifth or something like that. But you see him move meticulously into the pod, but not without uh, a sense of urgency. So there's this really interesting thing that's happening where he's not, he's, he's urgent and he wants to get out there, but we don't see it in a dramatic way that we do in most action movies. Like there's not this running and because he can't, he can't run. Right. And I thought that was, Another interesting thing that Kubert says, look, you're stuck in space. You can't run. You can't be instant, instantly in your pod and going out to get your friend. Yep. And, and, and it just, again, that lingering that makes it really, really good. Yeah. And the realism it's, yeah, it, it is, it's def, it's a different animal. And we are so accustomed to that. What some people would call emotional manipulation via the music or, you know, the action that we are forced to feel a certain way or our emotions are heightened because of that. And you have to, you have to do some work. Like you have to invest yourself. It doesn't come easily Mm -hmm. and you can't just look up from your phone and all of a sudden be emotionally wrecked by this movie, you know, (laughs) because of the sound of some swelling orchestra or something. Yeah. Throughout the scenes, Kubrick reminds us that it's not about the destination. It's really about the journey and the the sequence where Dave is going out to get Frank that lingers for about two or three minutes. And when it didn't have to, but it does. And we get beep, beep, beep. Yeah. beep all we get are the sound. We get, again, no, we get no, the but realistic. <laughs> and he's just, you see, for all, all you see is the perspective looking at Dave and he's like pushing buttons. And I'm, I'm sure he's just randomly like pushing prop buttons to get out there, but it takes him a while to get there. And it gets us more concerned about the fact that we want him to get there. We want him to get there as opposed to he's got him because he eventually has to let him go. Yep. And so you could argue that, well, that was futile, (laughs) but, but, but it wasn't to me because it spoke to what you said about the humanity and these guys valuing each other. Hey, one last technical thing. Did you like the score? Do you like the score overall? Cause I know that there was some weirdness around like a composer that got, they didn't use the original score or something. Yeah the the original the original guy who scored it I can't remember his name. Is it Kubrick Andy North? North or something I, like that? I don't I don't, re- I don't recall. I remember reading about Kubrick hiring him and having him score the film, and then opting not to use his move uses his use his music, and he actually didn't find out about this until actually watching the premiere. I personally I don't I don't like the music because it's. I'm not a big fan of the classical, but I don't know what would replace it to be equally as, as fitting. Um, I, the, the aesthetic of it, the, the general like music itself, I wasn't much of a fan of, but I thought it was fitting and I thought it created a nice, the tone, it, it set the tone very nicely because in, in the Jupiter sequence, we didn't get any music whatsoever, but the, the, after the dawn of man, we get a nice, uh, we get a nice set of classical music that sort of just amplifies the beauty of, of how humanity has advanced technologically. Yeah. I, I really like it. I'm on the other side of that. I think it's phenomenal. So I'm, I'm a big fan. It's a score that I can listen to even without the movie and really enjoy. And I'm, I'm glad that they didn't uh, try and use a more traditional type of music or movie score personally. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Let's lead into our connecting points uh, as we finish up the conversation. What was the, uh, what was the one moment or one scene for you, Aaron, that stood out that you connected with the most? All right. Well, there are numerous scenes that I really did kind of feel some emotional connection to the movie. And I mentioned that one earlier that was in strong contention for this, but the moment that I'm going to go with is probably the one when I, I, I don't know. I just, I felt the most voyeuristic in this and it's when Hal is listening to the astronauts talk about him. So there's just an incredible technical mastery to the way this scene is shot in the framing. We have Dave and Frank who go into a pod to try and be secluded and private so that Hal can no longer hear what they're saying. So they're already paranoid, right? And they're in the foreground of the shot facing each other. And what we see is in the center of them and in the center of the screen in the background is Hal. And he's kind of fuzzy and out of focus. And so Dave and Frank, they, they believe that they're now completely private. And I think that this, this shows me how much they respect and fear Hal and the fact that they believe he's doing these things on purpose. I feel like this really captures that realization that you are helpless and at the mercy of a computer lost in deep space. And it's got to be terrifying. And I, and I think they do a very good job of what is this underlying fear that they must have that are trying their hardest to stay calm and deal with it, which you would expect if they're going to be chosen to be on this mission as astronauts, like they would have to have been trained and be able to, in theory, handle this kind of stress and it does very it does this very well and of course later we learn that hal is of course reading their lips and we do because the camera starts to switch pan in a zoom in shot between each of the actors as they're talking between dave and frank and we know by it doing this that that zoomed in circle means hal is seeing this hal is reading your lips it shows very clearly and we don't we don't hear them in this moment. We don't hear any dialogue. We just see Mal's moving, which we're Hal. We are being Hal in that moment. And it becomes completely scary and almost horrific because you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. They don't think he hears them. But now we as an audience know that he does. And so we are ready and kind of worried about what the next step is going to be. And so everything about this is just completely amazingly crafted i think from the plot itself the decision for them to try and do this to the way that, that it's shot it's got to be my favorite scene in the whole movie and it's the one that puts me in that heightened emotional state where i'm genuinely concerned for them now see i wish i would have said my connecting point before yours because it went along really well and it was a scene just before that where they came back from pulling in the AE 35 unit and they find out that it's not, not malfunctioning. And there's a significant set of dialogue that helps increase the tension that I think both you and I were feeling once we got back on board, discover with Bowman and pool, you know, we find out uh, that until that moment on such a crucial mission in deep space, a perfect computer made a mistake. We get that interview earlier that foreshadows potentially what's going to happen, how, apparently makes a mistake and that puts them kind of on edge. And then 
it made me be right there with Bowman and Poole thinking that either how this computer that's in charge of everything, the onboard uh, environmental stuff in charge of the life support for these three individuals, which let me just, let me just step back and say, why would you put a computer in charge of so much? Just saying passengers, buddy happens there too. It's yeah, whatever. Yeah. So I guess we still haven't learned even in 2016. That computer woke people up. Sorry. I mean, it, yeah, it, this one's nicer than hell. Yeah, this no, one puts this them to sleep. <laughs> We're derailing. Sorry. But it's what made the follow-up scenes like yours and then eventually with Poole's death so much more impactful because it made me wonder, is Hal malfunctioning or is he lying What's going on? And it puts this really mysterious aura around Hal, who doesn't have facial expressions. He just has a red dot, a red LED light, a red light. And he talks occasionally and sings Daisy Daisy as he's being put to sleep. You know, we have so much minimalist stuff that goes on around this character that those moments you're seeing and then the scene after that mine and then the one where we we lose frank those three scenes right there i believe are incredibly pivotal to creating the tension that we that we feel in the movie and i think more than anything it amps up the importance of how not just as a crew member but also as a central character to the movie i love the fact that you said that how really is the central character in this film more than anything, but outside of humanity in general, but he is the central character. He's kind of the glue that holds the the main plot together. Totally agree. And that's, I mean, that's a very understandable connecting point because you're right. It does. It kind of, they kind of tie together, right? You get the effect of one because of the other. And so now I will say this, the book in the sequel actually explained more about that whole event and why, how did what he did. But I won't go into it because, again, it leaves it nice and ambiguous. Fascinating because I was going to ask you a question about that. Okay. Um, And that is that there is something that I did not – I don't think I've ever really noticed this or focused on this before. But when Hal is dying and being shut down, you can really feel for him. It it is one of the most emotional scenes in the movie. And this is also in high contention because he's like, I I feel myself dying. I feel myself losing – at the end of that sequence, right before he goes off, we start hearing snippets of interviews played back of the NASA guys and the, the people back home. And so it made me wonder, you know, how knows all of this data? How knows about the monolith, even though Frank and Dave don't? So does that change anything? Or does that speak at all to maybe his purpose of trying to derail the mission? Because he has this knowledge of what is actually happening and what is going on, whereas they do not. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting how that works because we only see his actions, but we don't get to necessarily know his motivations. And it sounds like you're saying that's what gets explored in that further Mm -hmm. material, which makes me that I kind of actually do want to go seek out now. Well, it, it gets explained clearly in, in 2010, but I will say this. I enjoy 2010 on its own merits. It's not, it's not, it's not a fantastic film. It's a, it's a good movie, one that I enjoy each time I watch it. And it's clearly distinctly different from 2001. 
it was, I don't know who it was directed by, but uh, Kubrick endorsed it in terms of the director said, Hey, I'd like to continue the story. And he worked with Arthur Clark based on his uh, follow-up book. And Kubrick said, yeah, run with it. That's yours. Um, you know, 2001 was mine and I'm, that's all I wanted. And so 2010 from a narrative standpoint, really uh, to me satisfies that. So. Well, that's good, man. I, I will put that on my watch list then because I need to know what happens. <laughs> I need, or I need to know why Hal did what he did. Well, maybe people on social media can help explain that to you. I guess that would save me having to watch the movie. True, but it's probably better to watch the movie. Either way, where can people find you on social media? Uh, well, you can find me tweeting out of the Feelin' Film Twitter. That's F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M or Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. And always active in our Facebook discussion group where we love talking about movies all day, every day of the week. So listeners, we'd love to have you come join that. You can find a link to that in the show notes or on the website or just go search for Feelin' Film in Facebook and you can find it that way. I'm pretty excited, Patrick, because later this week we are going to be releasing our first Connecting with Classics episode where Don Shanahan and I go through the AFI Top 100 list. Now, we're not going in order, but we are just bouncing around looking for films that might be, you know, make sense relatively to the time period. We're, we're going to start by covering All the President's Men, which will be a great companion piece to you and I's episode on The Post that we did uh, last week. And I am, I'm just very excited. I think it's going to be a fun experience and there's a little bit of a challenge element to it, listeners. So if you haven't already, go to the website, feelinfilm.com. And probably the best way is either to go to the blog tab and scroll or just go into the search bar and type in connecting with classics and you can pull up that blog post and it outlines what you need to do to participate. There's going to be a challenge. I'll also talk about that in the episode if you want to listen, Uh, but you can participate and you can earn chances to be in a drawing and get some free stuff at the end of the year while broadening your movie knowledge and talking about some great classic films with other movie lovers. Thanks, man. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. At me for any kind of conversations you want to have about this or any other movies that we have covered. You can also check out more of our episodes on our website, feelingfilm.com, as Aaron mentioned. And as always, we thank you guys for listening. Uh, You guys are what make the show what it is. Aaron, thanks for the discussion tonight. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.